Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, Transfer Pricing Litigation Update. We're diving back into the troubled waters of U.S. transfer pricing disputes. This time, we have three cases featuring significant questions and significant money at stake. Tax Notes contributing editor Ryan Finley will join me in just a minute to help us sort out what's going on and what it could mean for the future of transfer pricing. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Tax Notes federal author Edith Brashares about her co-authored article on the separate economic analysis section of tax regulations. But first, Ryan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with an easy one, uh, Medtronic versus Commissioner. Can you tell us what's going on there? Sure. So Medtronic's a case that's been with us for well over a decade. Um, the case is about figuring out the arm's length royalty for uh, Medtronic U.S.'s license of the IP necessary to make implantable cardio and neurological devices that includes patents, but other things as well, to its subsidiary, uh, which is called MPROC. MPROC manufactures the devices in Puerto Rico. So the, the case is really about What's the best transfer pricing method to figure out the royalty? Okay, so what sort of methods are in dispute? What are people trying to uh, assert? Okay, so this is kind of a, a recurring feud between the IRS and taxpayers that um, shows up in this sort of methodological conflict. The taxpayer, Medtronic, as is usually the case, favors the comparable uncontrolled transaction method. That's a method, it's a sort of a traditional transactional method where you try to find a comparable uh, arm's length license and you use the royalty from that license to figure out what the royalty ought to be on the um, controlled license. Now, Medtronic, um, the way they applied this method, they used a litigation settlement agreement uh, with Pacesetter Siemens Inc. And then they, they used the royalty from that settlement agreement and they made a bunch of uh, sort of upward comparability adjustments to, you know, establish, in their view, comparability with uh, the MPROC license. Now, the, the tax court actually mostly accepted this approach subject to a few additional upward comparability adjustments in its Medtronic 1 opinion in 2016, but the IRS appealed and the Ace Circuit later vacated in 2018. The IRS's favored method is the comparable profits method, or CPM. Uh, the CPM it determines what's often called a routine return for the tested party, which is the party to the transaction that's supposed to perform relatively standardized functions, uh, standard, have standardized assets and risks, which the, the standardization is what lets you identify comparable independent enterprises. So basically, you look at the returns that these comparable enterprises earn, and you basically set their return on assets based on what you know, the return on assets is for these comparables. By design, whatever's left after the tested party, in this case MPROC, gets its routine return, has to get paid back to the, to the other party. Here, it's, it's sort of paid back as a royalty to Medtronic U.S. So the, the dispute here is it's basically, on one hand, you have the IRS questioning the comparability of this paysetter agreement. And then on the other side, you have Medtronic saying that MPROC's role is too crucial, too irreplaceable, too unique. It bears a level of risk and holds intangibles that are just absolutely without peer in the entire world. 
and therefore you cannot possibly find any other implantable medical device manufacturer to use in a CPM analysis. As I said, in Medtronic 1, the tax court sided with Medtronic, which means they rejected the CPM. And then in Medtronic 2, which was, um, it happened on remand after the Eighth Circuit vacated, the decision uh, turned out a little differently, but they still rejected the CPM. So what are the, the different outcomes from these, these methods that, that make one side want to use one versus the other party saying that, no, the only way to do it is this other method? So the, the IRS tends to like the CPM because it, it fixes the returns that you know, an offshore licensee can earn, and that forces them to pay whatever's back, you know, whatever's left back to the U.S. in the form of a royalty. So it really kind of establishes a ceiling on, you know, the amount of uh, income that, you know, escapes the U.S. tax base. Now, Medtronic likes the cut better. You know, one of the reasons is, you know, the cut method, it it sets a royalty. It doesn't cap the returns that the foreign licensee can earn. And also, uh, you know, arguably there are sort of systematic differences between the kinds of licenses you see between related parties and the licenses you see between unrelated parties, and these differences tend to skew the royalty rates lower under the cut method. So you mentioned that this case was remanded. What happened there? So on remand, there was a trial held in um, summer of 2021, eventually led to uh, a Medtronic II opinion in August 2022. Uh, the opinion introduced another method into the case. It was actually based on a method that, that Medtronic had proposed in post-trial briefing, although Kerrigan made some significant uh, adjustments to it. It's funny, like what, what you call this method is itself controversial, but what, what Judge Kathleen Kerrigan chose to call it uh, was an unspecified method, which is, you know, there's a, a reg section that basically acknowledges the possibility that a method that the regulations don't specifically specify might be the best method, but subject to certain conditions. You know, th- this method has such, it bears such a strong similarity to basically a version of the cut method that has even even more adjustments um, than the original cut method accepted in Medtronic 1, which was actually one of the reasons that, um, you know, the comparability of the paysetter agreement was called into question in the first place, that you needed so many comparability adjustments to say that they're, they're comparable. But basically, you know, this method, this I've called it a mutation of the cut method, it started with a paysetter royalty, just like the cut would have, and it made these upward adjustments that kind of involved elements of the CPM and sort of elements of a profit split. And it's kind of, you know, none of it really uh, aligns with the way you apply these concepts in the regulations. But by starting with the pay set of royalty and then making these adjustments, functionally, it really is a version of the cut method, I think. The main distinction is that the cut regulations would never let you make these kinds of exotic and very uh, innovative adjustments. So, but whatever you know, whatever you call it, the method, and this is intentional, um, it yielded a royalty rate that was near the midpoint of the rates that the IRS's CPM analysis um, implied, and the royalty rate that Medtronic's uh, cut method analysis yielded. So, Kerrigan had said that her goal was bridging the gap between the parties' positions, and if nothing else, her her method did that. But um, no one was really happy with the outcome, not the IRS, because its method was rejected in favor of a method that's on questionable grounds under the regulations. And Medtronic wasn't happy either because Kerrigan took the method they proposed, but 
the last step of, of this method involved an allocation of, of a, basically a pool of remaining profit. And she basically, um, she significantly shifted the percentage so that more profit went to the U.S. So even though methodologically, in a sense, Medtronic won, uh, monetarily, not so much. So, you know, the fast forward, now we have uh, a second government appeal to the Eighth Circuit, and we also have a Medtronic cross appeal. Uh, the government filed its opening brief in December, and Medtronic filed its opening brief just earlier this month. What are some of the main arguments being raised uh, on this appeal? So we're still arguing about the best method. Now, of course, we have an, a third candidate in the running, and the, the, the you know, legal turf has shifted a bit because now there's a Medtronic 2 opinion for the parties to sort of dissect and debate. The main arguments the government has made, you know, and, and I think they're right about most of them, that you know, th- this cut-like Medtronic 2 method has the effect of basically circumventing pretty bright line regulatory conditions that, that have to be met before you can apply the cut method. It would kind of potentially undermine the regulatory scheme if you could pick and choose which conditions you want to satisfy in the cut regulations and then just white out cut method and write unspecified method. I think that's kind of um, you know, a broader issue that's, that's raised here. Um, the government's also argued that, um, that this, merit, this method that Judge Kerrigan applied, even though she referred to it as an unspecified method, it doesn't actually meet the regulatory conditions of an unspecified method in the, in the section of the regulations that, that authorize them. On the flip side, the, the government's also defending the CPM analysis. They, they say that the tax court, you know, applied the wrong comparability standard. It was, you know, inappropriately strict and that they didn't make, you know, the factual findings necessary to reject the comparables. Uh, in Medtronic's brief, they're still arguing that the cut method is the best method, but they're saying that the next best method is this unspecified method, only not the way Judge Kerrigan applied it, but the way they originally applied it. Medtronic also claims that you can adjust intangible property into comparability through these sort of royalty rate comparability adjustments, although, you know, the, whether that's really allowed under the regulations is definitely uh, at least debatable. What are the, the broader implications for this case? We've got the rise of unspecified methods. So, so what could this case bring about? Well, I think that the IRS would consider it a um, an unfavorable outcome if this really led to a rise in unspecified methods, especially unspecified methods along these lines. I think, you know, from the IRS's perspective, the significance, it really is about reinforcing judicial acceptance of the CPM. Really, the first time a court decisively came down in favor of the CPM, as applied by the IRS, over other methods, including the cut method, uh, favored by a taxpayer was in 2020 in the Coca-Cola opinion. So if the government wins, you know, if the case is remanded, uh, you know, and the CPM is ultimately accepted, that would really consolidate um, the sort of tentative uh, acceptance of recognition for, of the C- CPM that, that the IRS first kind of secured in Coca-Cola. Now, that wouldn't end the debate. Um, I'm tr- you know, that would only be in one circuit and Taxpayers could still, you know, make similar arguments in, in other circuits, but it, it would still be a, a significant setback for this idea that there's 
a hierarchy of methods. Of course, a Medtronic win would be very significant as well because then it would, you know, cast out on sort of the, the reach of Coca-Cola. It would create doubt as to whether this hierarchy of methods that the regulations repudiated 30 years ago is somehow still there. Between Coca-Cola and Medtronic, there really wouldn't be a whole lot of guidance as to, you know, in terms of future cases as to whether, you know, the CPM or the cut method, you know, ought to be uh, preferred in the circumstances. Now, how do you see the court resolving this issue? Yeah, it's it's really, you know, it's always very hazardous to predict. Um, many of the outcomes in these cases are surprises to many people. I would say that uh, when the Eighth Circuit vacated in 2018, they really showed a, a real clear sensitivity to the importance of the regulations when they basically, I mean, they didn't say that the paysetter agreement wasn't comparable. They said that the tax court failed to substantiate its assumption that the paysetter agreement was comparable. But in doing so, it, it really did, the opinion really did cast doubt on the, on the prospects of, of, you know, this, this paysetter agreement ever really satisfying the regulatory standards. Um, but again, it's really hard to predict. But the, the limited uh, sort of tea leaves we have would suggest that maybe, um, you know, Medtronic might face a little bit of an uphill battle. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. This preeminent and innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student-to-faculty ratio, cutting-edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's graduate tax program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information and to apply to this highly selective program, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. All right, let's turn to another case, this one being a case that went on for, for quite a while. Uh, that would be a 3M versus Commissioner. First, could you give us some background on the case? Yeah, well, it, it did go on for quite a while, which um, did not escape the attention of many uh, people who were eagerly awaiting it. A part of that reason might be that the, the plurality opinion was over 300 pages. It also might be because on top of that, there's another two concurring opinions and three dissenting opinions. But whatever the case may be, um, uh, the case is about the, the concept of blocked income, which refers to income that a controlled taxpayer would have violated the law if it had you know, paid it or received it. And then the question is whether the IRS can make a Section 482 allocation of income you know, that, that uh, would be considered blocked income um, because of a legal restriction. In 3M, the, the restriction at issue was a Brazilian law that capped the royalty rate on certain kinds of IP licenses between, you know, a local subsidiary and its foreign parent. Under the regulations now, often called the blocked income regulations, there's a pretty stringent list of conditions that have to be satisfied before the IRS will agree not to reallocate income because of a foreign um, legal restriction. And taxpayers' position, including 3M's, is that these conditions go way beyond, you know, what judicial precedent suggests that, that 
the, the conditions ought to be. So 3M, basically, they argue that the regs are substantively invalid, largely on the basis of this uh, Supreme Court decision in First Security Bank of Utah. And um, there's also a parallel procedural challenge. Just a little background on First Security Bank. It's a really um, interesting opinion. You could ask 17 different tax court judges and get five different answers. One view is that it excluded blocked income from the definition of income, period. You know, one interpretation is that it construed Section 482 in such a way that blocked income cannot be reallocated. And then yet another way is that, uh, of interpreting it is that the decision was based on the regs that were in place at the time. And which it is it really matters because, you know, because it changes to the statute and changes to the regs. It affects the precedential value of First Security Bank for this case. All right. So how did the tax court ultimately come down on this case? The tax court didn't really come down any one way. There was a plurality opinion signed on by seven of the uh, 17 tax court judges who reviewed the opinion. There were another uh, two judges who concurred in the result but did not sign on to the plurality opinion, giving nine judges in favor of upholding the regs. And then the remaining eight judges signed on to one or more of the three dissenting opinions. But in terms of what the plurality opinion said, basically under Chevron, that the, the regs were consistent with a, a, a reasonable interpretation of the statute and that the, the rulemaking procedure complied with the uh, Administrative Procedure Act. And uh, importantly, the, the plurality opinion said that the two sentences of Section 482 that were in effect at the time, the first allows the IRS to, to um, make allocations to clearly reflect income um, and the second sentence, which imposes this commensurate with income standard, that either one of those independently would provide authorization for these blocked income regulations because the income that was blocked in this case was royalty for a, a license of IP. Now, I understand this case uh, had a direct impact on another case. So, so what effect did this have? Yeah, this blocked income issue has kind of been tied to the, the Coca-Cola case as well. Shortly after the opinion came out in 3M, Judge Albert Lauber, who's the judge in the Coca-Cola case, requested briefing on the blocked income issue that, that he had reserved holding on in 2020 pending 3M. So once 3M was decided, that allowed sort of Coca-Cola to move forward. Judge Lauber, he issued a, uh, a supplemental opinion on the blocked income issue in Coca-Cola, but it was a little different. It wasn't necessarily based on the reasoning in 3M. Kind of some of the regulatory conditions that were central in 3M were, were less important in Coca-Cola and vice versa. Um, in Coca-Cola, the, the main thing was that there's a, uh, there's a requirement under the regulations that the foreign legal restriction block the payment of, you know, whatever it is in any form. So, for example, the regula- if, if you were able to pay the amount as a dividend, you're not allowed under the regulations to say, hey, we can't pay the royalty. The, the regulations would say, yeah, you could pay it. You just have to say it's a dividend. The problem in Coca-Cola is that they had for some time been paying dividends and crediting them against um, the royalties that were required under Section 482. So it's a, a little bit of a difficult argument to say that you can't be forced to mischaracterize um, royalty income as a dividend when you have been crediting 
dividends against royalty income for years. So in, in any case, that led to a supplemental opinion, and eventually that'll clear the way for what everyone expects will be a, an appeal of the Coca-Cola case. So turning back to 3M now, where do things stand now? I, I understand it's, it's on appeal to the Eighth Circuit. What's happened? Right. So 3M, is, they've filed their, um, their opening appellant brief, also with the Eighth Circuit, um, the brief, it makes uh, quite a few arguments. A lot of them are, you know, arguments you'd expect based on the party's positions in the case. Uh, the brief says that First Security established sort of the authoritative interpretation of Section 482, and it also argues that it excludes blocked income from the general definition of income overall. The brief also sort of focuses on the idea that the plurality came down the way they did based on, on Chevron deference instead of, as they put it, the, the best reading of the statute that, according to, to 3M, overstretched sort of Chevron deference. Then there's also the issue as to whether the commensurate with income standard, which, as I said, it, it's something that applies to intangible property, whether that was relevant because the plurality had, had held that, you know, this, this sentence, you know, with or without the first sentence, this was a sufficient independent statutory authority you know, to apply the blocked income regs, at least in this case. But what was, I think, more interesting and something that wasn't necessarily obvious from the party's positions before is the brief really tries to take advantage of a favorable Supreme Court rulings that could possibly be forthcoming uh, regarding Chevron uh, and in the Moore case. You know, 3M, they, as I said, they really emphasize the idea that it was, you know, the, ta- the plurality's decision was based on deference doctrines, which may not be with us for that much longer. Um, and it, it actually says in the brief that 3M reserves the right to sort of reformulate its arguments if, if Chevron is, is um, overturned in the meantime. Uh, but they also try to sort of parlay more by saying that, you know, if the court were to interpret income in a way that includes blocked income, that you may have a uh, 16th Amendment violation. So the brief says, hey, you know, you should reject that interpretation because it would create a serious constitutional question. And I don't think uh, anyone saw a 16th Amendment issue in the 3M case uh, until, you know, very recently. But, you know, the the disputes, it's a pure question of law. So despite all the ink spilled and time spent by the tax court, it will be reviewed de novo by, by the Eighth Circuit, and wh- you know, where they'll come down, I think, is anyone's guess. But it's important to remember that the Eighth Circuit is not the only circuit that's going to um, you know, be taking a look at the blocked income regulations. As I said, Coca-Cola is surely headed for appeal, and so the Eleventh Circuit will, will ha- have a look at it too. So um, you know, and it could continue to come up in, in other circuits in the future as well. So it's it's, a, it's an issue that won't be settled for some time. It'll be very interesting to watch. Now, I got one more case to, to ask you about, and that's Abbott Labs versus Commissioner. So what is the status of this case, and what is it all about? Well, it's about many things. This case is pretty um, – it's, it's in its infancy. The, the tax court petition was um, filed at the end of um, 2023. There are a whole bunch of issues. Some are transfer pricing. Some aren't. The thing that, that jumps out to somebody who focuses on transfer pricing is a reg validity challenge. Well, there are, there are two. One is challenging the cost-sharing regulations 
uh, rule that parties to a cost-sharing arrangement, or CSA, have to share stock-based compensation costs, basically stock options that one of the parties grants. But they also are challenging an analogous rule under the services regs that um, says that when, whenever you use cost as the basis or, or cost plus to charge out services, that you have to include you know, the, the stock-based compensation costs and that cost base. Abbott Labs is, is challenging both. The cost-sharing regulation is it's kind of the modern counterpart to the regulation that was challenged in Altera. And Altera itself was a sort of a sequel to Xilinx. So this is uh, kind of the newest installment in a dispute that's been going on for decades at this point. But, you know, the important difference with Altera is, number one, that it's, um, it involves the services regs. And that's, that's important because if you look at the Ninth Circuit's Altera opinion that reversed the tax court and sided with the IRS, it's not clear whether the commensurate with income standard was strictly necessary for the Ninth Circuit to come down the way it did, but it figures prominently in the opinion. And services are not subject to the, I mean, it would be a strained reading of uh, the commensurate with income standard to suggest that routine services fall under the commensurate with income standard. So that means that you can, to the extent that the, the inclusion of stock-based compensation in the cost base is authorized by the statute, it would have to be under the first sentence and not the second that includes the commensurate with income standard. The other important difference is that we're in a different circuit now. The Ninth Circuit precedent, you know, doesn't control because um, if this case leads to an appeal, and I would think it's very likely that it will, it would be the Seventh Circuit that would hear that appeal. So obviously they're not bound by Ninth Circuit precedent. Now, you mentioned that that these cases keep cropping up. I remember covering this back when I was the transfer pricing reporter here. So why is stock-based compensation such a big deal and why does it keep coming up? Well, it's a, it's a big deal because it, it accounts for a significant share of the employee compensation costs of, you know, the kinds of big multinationals that enter these sort of um, intragroup uh, transactions and arrangements. If you say that parties to a cost-sharing arrangement don't have to share stock-based compensation costs, then the U.S. participant, you know, can pay its employees in stock options and the whole deduction stays in the U.S. If... You have a U.S. service provider um, that's charging out a cost plus, and you say that they, you know they can grant stock options to the people who are performing these services, but you don't have to include that in in the cost base. Then there's no reimbursement or markup, you know, on these service charges, and because of the amount that's that's at stake here, that, that that's those are significant amounts. But the the issue keeps coming up also because it, it really raises a, an important question under the arm's length standard. You know, the, the arm's length standard generally requires that transactions between commonly controlled uh, enterprises, you know, be priced as if the transaction had taken place at arm's length. You know, and most people would agree that arm's length parties do not share or reimburse each other's stock-based compensation costs. Um, so taxpayers' argument is that arm's length parties never do this, and the regulations are based on the arm's length standard, so you can't require... Uh, you know, control parties to do something that arm's length parties would never do. You know, this it takes the form of su- substantive validity challenges, although that requires uh, the assumption that, that the statute forces you to kind of use transactional evidence. And it also is the basis for, you know, APA challenges like in, in Altera. These challenges really, they, they rest on a, 
at the very least questionable, and in my opinion, false interpretation as to what Section 482 really requires. Um, the reason, the reasons that arm's length enterprises don't share stock-based compensation costs just aren't relevant when you're talking about members of the same multinational group. And the main reasons are valuation challenges and sort of stock price volatility risks. And if you're talking about two members of the same group, those challenges are no greater for one of the parties than they would be if, if they had you know, issued the stock options themselves. And then the, the other issue is you, know, you don't typically see a lot of these arrangements between unrelated parties. It's well recognized that some transactions, for good reasons, make sense between related parties, but wouldn't make sense between unrelated parties. But if you, if you just think about what would happen if unrelated parties had entered an arrangement like this, you know, it would, it would be totally economically irrational to keep paying your employees in stock options when if you paid them in any other way, the other party would have to pick up a share of it or you'd be entitled to reimbursement plus a markup. It's just not really how arm's length enterprises operate. So, you know, to the extent that the arm's length standard is kind of based on a counterfactual, like what would happen if the parties were unrelated, the idea is that if that were the case that you know, the stock-based compensation costs would have to be accounted for in one way or another. So what sort of reasoning is there that this should be answered differently from the way Altera came down? Well, yeah. So it's th- there's the distinction I mentioned before about cost-sharing arrangements versus services. So you have a statutory provision that applies to one and not the other. It could conceivably affect the outcome. But there's there's also kind of the complex way precedent works for the tax court. So the tax court decided Altera in Altera's favor, but it was reversed in the Ninth Circuit. As I said, you know, this case will go up to the Seventh Circuit. So under the, the Golson rule, the tax court doesn't have to follow the Ninth Circuit's opinion, but it's supposed to, you know, approach the, the issue again, kind of reconsider its, its reasoning, and then, you know, decide whether it's precedent or the non-binding Ninth Circuit precedent is the better way to go. I'd say to the extent that, that the merits fact, factor into it at all, I would, I would say that this is a prime opportunity for the tax court to kind of distance itself with some of the errors it's made in the past and to kind of follow the, uh, the Ninth Circuit's Altair opinion that, that reversed the tax court. You know, the idea that the arm's length standard must always be based on sort of transactional evidence is... I think, an antiquated idea whose time has come and passed. So gaming this out into the future, what would it mean for either of these parties to, to win in this case? Well, I think because of the, the virtual certainty of an appeal, whatever happens at the tax court level is kind of tentative. You know, the tax court could go either way, difficult to say. But whatever happens, it's almost certainly going to end up before the Seventh Circuit. And that will be a big deal because... You know, if the Seventh Circuit reaches the same conclusion that the Ninth Circuit did, then you have two circuits that took the IRS's side on this issue, and you start to see maybe a, a budding consensus that the IRS is right. It could deter future challenges, though, of course, if you're in any of the other circuits, you still could bring the, uh, the issue. But if Abbott Labs were to win on appeal, then you would have a circuit split, and all of the sort of legal chaos that follows. 
which who knows, it could end up putting the, the issue before the Supreme Court. But that's still a, a pretty long way off. Well, all right. There's uh, definitely a lot of stuff that we need to be keeping track of. And Ryan, thank you for updating us on all of it. Thanks for having me. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Senior Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Greg Matlock and Christine Chai examine the taxation of carbon capture use and sequestration. Eric Jensen challenges the argument that limitations on the taxing power in the Constitution can be ignored if a specific tax can be considered a regulation of commerce. In Tax Note State, Stephen Lodachak explores the ruling in Wynn and how the decision in Zilka compares. Nicholas Montorio and Denise Modersky discuss recently issued New York State tax regulations. In Tax Notes International, Angelo Nicolakakis questions the clarity of the recent Husky Energy decision. Andreas Sila summarizes recent updates in Thai tax law and explores the potential consequences and motivations of these changes. And finally, in featured analysis, Joe Thorndike argues that even if a ruling in Moore raises questions about the constitutionality of a wealth tax, a VAT could still reduce inequality and raise revenue. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here's Tax Notes Federal Editor-in-Chief Ariel Greenblum. Thanks, Jasper. I'm here with Edith Brashares, former director in the Treasury Office of Tax Analysis. Welcome to the podcast, Edie. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. We're here to discuss your Tax Notes Federal article, Is the Economic Analysis of Treasury Regulations Worth the Trouble, which you co-authored with John Horwitz. Could you tell us about it? Sure. Uh, This is an area that had been a major focus of rig writing processes during the TCJA era. John Horwitz, my co-author, and I thought readers would be interested in an assessment of how it went. I'll note that there's a this is under a 2018 MOA between Treasury and OMB, and that no longer applies. As of June 2023, there's a new MOA, so Treasury doesn't have to do this kind of analysis of tax reg. Anyway, while we are at Treasury, the Office of Tax Policy devoted considerable effort to conducting these economic analyses, and the process delayed promulgation of TCJA regs as a result. And we thought readers would want to know what led to these delays and what could mitigate them. And of course, readers should also know what the contribution of OMB review was and try and decide whether the delays could be worthwhile if they were getting something valuable in return. So because Treasury is not required anymore. Do you do you know if they're going to be doing this economic analysis of any of its regulations anymore? Or is this just going to be a blip in Treasury's history, this economic analysis? It depends on who's in the White House. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a Republican administration that required economic analysis and review by OMB in the future for tax regulations. So that's part of the reason why we wrote the paper was, you know, you want to talk about what experience we have had 
And maybe if in the future they want to have some sort of economic analysis, they'll think about it a little bit more. Right. It's not that economists have nothing to say about treasury regulations. It's just you said in the article that the rubric for evaluating regs really was like health regulations. Other kinds of regulations were a better fit for the framework. Yes, that's exactly right. And and that's because traditional cost-benefit essentially treats tax revenues as transfers and ignores them. And if that's the case, then sort of one of the major reasons why you have tax uh, laws, if you will, is to raise revenue. And so you're sort of missing out on a, a lot of the big issues. The other thing I think is that tax may be um, a bit different than, say, in the health and the environmental area in terms of there's a statute. The statute lays out what the law is, and the regulation is just sort of working at the edges many times on that law, whereas in the environmental area, particularly I can think of, Congress may hand to the EPA, for example, the requirements to come up with, you know, how you define something as, you know, what the standard is, how you define it. You know, really a lot of what is already, if you will, done in the tax statutes. Thank you. Before we let you go, where can listeners find you online? John and I do not have a website, but people can send me an email at e. B-R-A-S-H-A-R-E-S at gmail.com. So my first initial and last name at gmail.com. Great. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast, Edie. Great. You can find Edie's co-authored article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Notes, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy in tax. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at TaxNotes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal accounting or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.